We've begun something now. There's no turning back. Yeah. You can try, but you'll never take up all the slack. And if you really hit it hard, it's still going to just be whack. Welcome. Back, Jack. To crack a Jack. (laughs) Nice. Ah. I was just thinking about this new trailer for this movie that I saw that was really disturbing called Cracka. Really? Yes. That's awesome. Have you seen the trailer? No. You wouldn't say awesome, I don't think. Well, is it a horror movie? Well, in a way. <laughs> well, so like you Imagine know. a world where instead of black people having been slaves, it was white people who are slaves and there's all these black people doing all these horrible things to white people like back in the day. So that sounds like a good movie. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Great. horrors of the world are horrible, no matter who's doing them. Agreed. So this is what happens. If you search the, in the Google with, for the word cracker, you find out new stuff. And there's a movie called cracker. That's so funny. It's brilliant. Someone's trying to cash in on the BLM. We're, we're part of the Krakageist. Krakageist. Ooh, that sounds awfully German. <laughs> oh, this is taking a turn for the worst. Welcome to episode 29. No, it's not, I don't even know what an episode 69. Is. We're out of here. <laughs> oh. Yeah. <clears throat> Isn't 69, besides being a sexual position, restaurant lingo for something that's canceled? No, that's 86. 86. That's it. I knew I had it wrong. Yeah. Have you got oral lingus on your mind <laughs> all the time? No, I've 86 it. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> no. I'm just trying to be funny, trying real hard. <laughs> Well, a little bit more of that 69, and it may be hard enough. That always helps. It does. Yes. Everyone enjoys the pleasures. Speaking purely from speculation. (laughs) What? Where is this going? You know what? You know what speculation is? It's when you make a speculum talk. It's not part of the uvula. Uh, (laughs) Remember that uh, Saturday Night Live, the uvula? Nope. Commercial? Oh, man. Saturday Night Live. All right, so how was your day? 
I was really hot and uncomfortable when I got home and I changed my clothes and I cooled off and I was able to sort of be semi-conscious. I didn't quite have a nap, but I had that sort of state where you're not quite awake either. And, um, <clears throat> then I reheated some leftover homemade Thai style food that had rice and celery and, um, that white thing that looks like broccoli maggots. Uh, what maggots? I don't know. I've never, no well, maggots don't look like oh, it was broccoli. cauliflower cauliflower. That's what they call it. <laughs> I was Aaron, still thinking of rice. Yeah, it was, it was very good. It helped me have some energy for this conversation. That's good. It, you know, it's really late Monday morning because it's Wednesday evening. Yeah. <laughs> We've changed our schedule, which, by the way, <clears throat> you know, we are live now to the world, though we're not live to the world loudly. But, yeah, we're... So how many episodes are up? Just one still. Oh, okay. But it's live and the podcast is live. It's an right. active living Stumble podcast. upon it by accidentally Googling cracker. <laughs> yes. What if we become the number one um, thing Google. that comes up if you Google cracker? <laughs> Actually, I, I, I wasn't Google. I, I put it in the search window for YouTube which explains why I got a TV a trailer. Yeah. Trailer. You could probably put anything in the, everyone's made a movie about everything. No, wait, someone has made a movie about everything. Wait, really? I can't There's been a movie created. Me. I'm looking forward to finding out how the one about me turns out. I think what you just announced it this act? morning. <laughs> what? <laughs> I wish I'd heard that. Well, you didn't. <laughs> You have to wait till I the get podcast. Enough. I'll be able to listen back to it in yes. a few weeks. <laughs> you fucker! <laughs> I know you'd said that. I would have pulled this episode. Okay, so now you you have the opposite problem. You're so enamored of that microphone that when you shout, you don't know better, and so you're wrecking your vocals when you when you shout that. It's close. so hot. So I could really be back here. It's a good mic, huh? No, that was great. The way your your proximity is good, but you just have to remember when you're going to yell, you have to change the position. Yeah, because otherwise you're just going to be. It's going to be like it won't be, it won't be like this nice, deep, sexy things. It'll be all crackly. I believe in Melcom. Won't you let it roll, you sexy thing, you? By the way, I want to give a shout out to Bananas um, at Large. That's where I got this from. It was on sale. They're just top notch. They're just a fucking blessing for anyone who cares about technical equipment for any anything in you know the realm of audio and entertainment. Uh, that is so true. In fact, I have an amazing story about bananas at large. All right, let's hear it. So there was this point in time in the early aughts. That's two thousands for if you don't understand what I mean, where the so when the Jews were building pyramids, no, I don't know. <laughs> there was a, a, there, there was a guitar company for a long time called Gretsch, but they went, they went, they basically stopped making guitars. Uh, 
And at one point, Fender, which is a massive company, started making Gretsch designs again. And for a long, long time, you couldn't buy a new Gretsch White Falcon. It was just kind of a model of the Gretsch, super deluxe, like white body with gold hardware, hollow body, inlay. Even the, the trim around the edges of the guitar and on the neck have this gold, like sparkliness to them. And <clears throat> I love these guitars, you know, uh, Neil Young, Stephen Stills, the, they had them and that's how I first heard out about it. Anyway, the Bananas at Large is a Fender dealership. So there was this point where the new white Falcons started showing up in the store and I was just beside myself because the idea of buying one prior to that was like a $35,000, $50,000 proposition. Nobody had them and those that had them were selling them for lots and lots of money. So I went in there one day and I'm like, oh my God, White Falcons and they're brand new. And I'm like, what's the deal? And he said, well, the one you're looking at is from Japan. We make them in Japan. And I said, well, how much are they? And they're like, oh, he said, they're about like five, 5,500, 6,000, something like that. And they were gorgeous. And um, I pulled it down and I played it and I was like, oh yes, this is what a $5,000 guitar feels like, right? And I was like, this is amazing. And so every couple of, you know, I was rehearsing a lot with my old band in those days and um, I would string theories and uh, <clears throat> I would go by the music store every twice a month, at least, and play their white Falcons. And they got to know me and there were, there were new white Falcon models that came in and I got to know like my favorite. And so I decided I'm going to have a white Falcon one day. And I put my photo of the white Falcon on my desk. Like I'm going to manifest this guitar. I don't know how I'm going to get, you know, $5,000 or whatever to get it. And, you know, there's the Japanese version and then there's the American version, which is even more deluxe. It's called the American custom shop version. So one year, about nine months later, I'm it's Christmas time and I'm just, I, you know, I'm married to this beautiful woman named Mary and we liked Christmas a lot and we used to do spectacular things for each other. And, um, that year I, I woke up and there was a white Falcon under the Christmas tree oh, damn. and I was like, wait a like i was at first i was like wait a minute honey that's a lot of money 5k like that's a lot of money and she's like well it wasn't totally that much the guy gave me a deal and i was like okay cool and i was like oh this is amazing and it comes with a certificate of authenticity with the serial number on it <clears throat> and i get i go I play it for a couple of days, you know, you're at Christmas time. You're like, yay. And then I decide, oh, I'm going to go even deeper. And I look the serial number up on the internet and it's a American custom shop version. And I'm like, I look up the price. It's $11,000 for this guitar. And now I'm freaking out. I'm like, what has my wife done? Like, where did she come up with $11,000 and she, but she didn't pay that. And I'm like, oh my God, they must've made a mistake at the shop. Cause she like went, can I have the white Falcon? And like, she paid the, I think it was like 4,100 or 4,200. I don't know what it was. Anyway, I was afraid to call them and go, look, I think there's been a mistake. Somebody gave my wife the, the wrong guitar. 
because like there's no way. I don't deserve this. <laughs> no, I do. But it was like it was like, you know, she didn't spend eleven thousand. Right. And I think there was a bunch of them and it's Christmas. It's always busy down there. You're thinking someone just grabbed the wrong guitar and thought. And, this then, was and my favorite music store right. is going to eat it now. Right. Right. And I'm like, oh, well, finally, six weeks later, I'm in the store again. And the owner, who I know pretty well, yeah, good um, is there. And I'm like, I, you know, I don't actually want to talk about this, but I can't talk, not talk about it anymore because it's bothering me because I love you guys and I love this store. And so I would just, I got a white Falcon for Christmas, but you know, my wife said she paid like 41, 3,700, something like that for it. And, um, I looked up the serial number and it's the custom shop version. And I'm worried you guys like lost your shirts and the owner put his arm around me and he goes, Mark, we knew how much you loved this guitar. So we gave you the custom version at our cost. It was the end of the serial number year. Uh, And we wanted Fender to see that we were selling all the different models. And so for us, we, we made a little money on it, right? We still made a little profit. It wasn't a lot. Right. And you got the <laughs> guitar of your dreams and your wife had no idea. She just wanted you to have the most special guitar she could come up with. So that's how it went down. And so that's the kind of music yeah. story that bananas is at large. That is, is. Real. that is such a perfect story to give them a shout out. Fuck. Yeah. So yeah, they are magic. Yeah. You know, and it's one of the only places in the world that you can go into the store and buy Joe Satriani's stuff that he's selling that he doesn't need anymore. Santana. So Bananas at Large in San Rafael and in Santa Rosa, um, they are amazing. They're known for their amazing service. I mean, I have a million stories because I've been going to this store for, you know, 25, 30 years. And they, they really care about musicians and they've managed to make it work. They've managed to stay in business, make a profit. You know, the guy owns a house in Marin, his kids go to school. It's not like, I mean, but they're not like the devil of musical capitalism, like uh, a company I won't even name. Yeah, I will. Aren't they guitar city? Who was buying up guitars during this COVID time when musicians were desperate for like, pennies to the dollar and reselling them guitar center guitar center yeah that's it guitar center fuck you guitar center yeah so good on you bananas at large yeah you're a bunch of bananas at large And, and i'll say this also it's not just that they care about musicians they care about people like anyone who walks through the door is their best friend like i don't consider myself a musician per se, but I walk through the door and there's a smile, a friendly person, and they're just glad to help me out with whatever I'm in there for. Even if I'm just checking stuff out, they're like, all right, cool. There's a lot of cool stuff to check out. Yeah. I went yep. in there with Jonah and then, cause he was looking at keyboards and was interested in a synthesizer and they were just like, yeah, check this out. He's like, oh, wow, that's cool. And yeah. getting into the history of some of the things, you know, and waveforms and all sorts of stuff that Jonah was loving. And I was like, okay. 
I think ultimately they just wanted to get me out of the store playing guitar. <laughs> this fucking guy. It's worth it to us. We'll tell Fender we're selling their prime guitars and we don't have to see Mark for another few months until <laughs> he breaks a strain. <laughs> Obviously, that's not the case. No. And I wish I'd been quicker with that whole part of the story. It would have been much funnier about three minutes ago, but it finally dawned on me that I had this really great joke. I could be telling an epiphany. Oh, wait a minute. I left some humor on the table. No, that wasn't humor. That was fact. Oh yeah. Merry Christmas, Mr. Wayne. (laughs) Get the hell out of here. Wow, that is beautiful. <clears throat> We're sick of smoke on the water. You know, there is magic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a solid joke right there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was good. I, I, I'm still laughing inside. That is such a, that was brilliant. I'm impressed. <laughs> this is your podcast, my friend. Oh, no. <laughs> 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 it's yeah. crack of jacks and there's two of them you know um one of the things that boggles my mind is obviously there was love there between you and your ex-wife you know like that kind of action comes from a place of caring for someone and yet it's not enough it's not enough to maintain a marriage relationship. And I don't have an answer. That's not going anywhere other than it kind of just, it's, it's a like, wow, how do people not grow in love? How do they grow out of love? Because we are not taught properly Hmm. we have these fables and these stories and these expectations and these roadmaps that we imagine in our mind about how it's all supposed to work and some of them just happen to work out okay others work out horrifically and then the one in a million is like the storybook romance and you know, the thing about that is, is I've seen every couple that I've seen that's happy after 35, 40 years of marriage, both sets of parents had something similar in their lives. So there is something to it about how the family unit is formed. I think in the case of my ex-wife, Mary, she and I, still enjoy a richness in our connection, even though we hardly ever talk to each other or see each other anymore, because we were the type of people that just don't kill the love part. We couldn't live together anymore, but the part of us that honored the other person that was enamored of the other person, it doesn't die. Right. Right. And you know, it was funny because when I proposed to her, it, it was this long discussion. It wasn't just like, oh, yes, you know, it was actually like a long discussion. And 
<laughs> yeah, she's like, why do you want to get married? Like, and, and I'm like, well, your parents are Catholic and I want to live with you for a while and find out what it's like to have a life with you. You're an amazing person. And I want to see where this goes. And I'm fully invested in, in just you and me. Right. And cue uh, the clash song. Go straight to hell, boys. <laughs> well, and, you know, I said, she said, but people always, you know, 50% of the people get divorced. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. And it's possible for us. But usually someone cheats or does something evil to the other person and they break up because of anger or resentment or, you know, something traumatic. How about we make a deal that if we get to the point where, we just don't feel that thing anymore and we want something else from someone else or we're thinking about that or some other thing comes up like let's skip the whole cheating and hurting each other part and you just come to me and say you know i want my freedom and if i ever feel that i'll just come to you it's going to be a hard thing to say but it'll be it'll be so much better than Oh my God, she slept mm -hmm. with him and blah, blah, blah. Or I slept with her and blah, blah, blah. So <clears throat> much to her credit, my ex-wife came to me at one point and said, you know, I never, I never, I, you know, I, she was pretty innocent when, when she married me and she hadn't had a lot of different lovers or had a lot of different life. And she was like, I want to, I want to have a different experience in my life. And, um, we weren't getting along we there was the spark was uh you know it was the twinkle in my eye and uh <laughs> and uh so we worked it out it was like she did right before thanksgiving she came to me with this and i'm like oh please like at least let's go through one more set of holidays together i don't want to be broken up with you on thanksgiving and christmas this year and we you know we can just be on our best behavior and have as much fun as we can possibly have and you know reconnect in whatever ways we can <clears throat> and right around december 15th i'm like this is pretty good she's all yeah i'm having a lot of fun like and the sex happened again and i was like all right well let's talk about it again and just see where we are, you know? And so like January 8th rolls around. And just so you know, this was like 17 years after the guitar, like t t 12 years after the guitar. No, see my timeline's all off. It was 11 years after the guitar. Anyway. Yeah. By that I'm time, it was just like, guitar strings under the Christmas tree. <laughs> I'm thinking like January 6th or 7th. I'm like, cause I didn't want to break up with her. I wanted right. to stay together. Mm -hmm. I was thinking like, okay, like things are good. Like, there's been sex. She's having a good time. I, she comes home happy. She's got dinner. You know, I haven't been rehearsing as much and leaving her as a band widow. And I'm like, this is going to be good. Like it's gonna, she's going to change her mind. And like right around January 15th, she's like, Nope, haven't changed my mind. <laughs> wow. And I mean, I pulled out all the stops. I did not want to break up with my ex-wife. And the, during that last year, I had totally co-created the breakup. Like I was not a saint. I was not, like I said, she was a band widow. There were things where I was like, I had expectations about her that weren't fulfilled. And I was angry and badly, a bad communicator about it and all of these things. Um, and it was such an important transformation for me to go through 
And I think for her, I don't want to speak for her, but she, she claimed it. I fought her on it. She relented for the holidays. God bless her. I will always appreciate her for that. And <clears throat> at the end of the day, I learned so much about myself that I would never have known. There's a, a thing people say, a man's never as happy as he is after his first divorce. Hmm. And there's some real truth to that. Um, and it's kind of a odd thing to say, right? But all of the limitations that marriage has had on you, all of the imagined things that you thought you were going to be doing and that you, now you can't do and all the things that you couldn't do because you were married suddenly become things you can do. Right. So I took full advantage of all of that. I started my personal growth <laughs> in a huge way. Started fucking like a wet rabbit. <laughs> well, first I learned to ohm. <laughs> then once oh, I learned we orgasmic meditation, that was it. There was also no stopping. Also known as me. when touch. Some Not people, quite. Is it? Yeah. There's another name for it, but I'm not going to give, they don't deserve my plug. I'm not giving it to them. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, a lot of people run when, well, not a lot. Anyway. So yeah, she was a brilliant soul. Still is. Still around. Um, you, you maybe you should ask her out. I know she's single. I don't care. <laughs> no, thank you. I shall pass. I think I've um, got it in my bones not to mess with friends exes regardless of time span <clears throat> yeah it, i can understand that yeah but you know it's weird like i was saying before how love hasn't really left me for her so when i think of how much i care about you and what a great guy you are and how much i respect her i'm like yeah why not if they're happy <laughs> tell that first christmas party and i walk in with the what is it called the white the Gretsch White Falcon. Yeah. <laughs> the Gretsch White Cock Ring. Yeah. <laughs> on my arm for some reason. Because <laughs> I still am picturing a falcon on my arm. <laughs> White Falcon. Hmm. <sighs> yeah, there's that weird thing of the imagined life with someone and the reality of that life with that person and yeah the imagine seems to be like a fish hook that's very alluring looks good until you're bleeding from the cheek and being yanked up into a breathless boat <laughs> <laughs> no oxygen i can't breathe <laughs> i remember being at a pirate party with her and those things are wild. Like you guys can just imagine out there hearing about this. It's called a pirate party. Just imagine what it's like. Well, anyway, they would have to imagine the people who threw them and the amount of drugs and alcohol that would be imbibed continuously. So we were, it was, you know, three o'clock in the morning on a beach with a bunch of 20 somethings and male and female all dressed like pirates and, and wenches. And, um, my ex-wife was there and at that point she wasn't my even my girlfriend we were we were just starting to sort of you know get together and 
this other pirate came along and said, I will battle you for this wench. And we got on these two tree stumps with a rope held between us. And the first guy to fall off or let go loses. And, and she was excited by that because we were both pretty strapping guys. And I, I remember winning her. Oh, nice. party. Yeah, that's awesome. Sort of misogynistic and chauvinistic <laughs> in a real, in a very straightforward, real way. But she participated. It wasn't like we were actually pirates holding a gun to her head. Right. Yeah. It, it sounds like a lot of fun. So anyone who feels a little triggered by that story needs to turn us off. <laughs> Why are you listening to Cracker Jacks? Come on, the title. The title didn't warn you. Yeah, go, go like go listen to Mary Lou Retton's podcast or something. Exactly. Yeah. Does she even have a podcast? Well, she should. Maybe she's just as raw as we are. Go listen to reruns of After uh, Last Night, she's Welcome. as raw as we are. Oh, yeah. In your dreams. <laughs> In your dreams. That was a perfect 10. <laughs> Planted that landing. Boom. Yeah, she was the first gymnast that, you know, I was like, I think, wasn't she the first to score a 10, perfect 10 in um, the Olympics? I'm going to say yes, but I'm not a uh, properly authorized opinion to to be. Why don't we just say yes for you and I, like for our, um, you know, life right now, we'll just say, yeah, that's real. Oh, here comes Google. Here comes Google. With all the answers you need. Just look it up and give us your money. We will watch you bleed. I'd rather talk about Simone Boyles. Files. She's a badass. She's the current badass. Mary Lou Retton was the badass when I was a kid. Yeah, but Simone. Simone is so much better than Mary Lou Retton was better than everybody else. It's yeah, like, but isn't that kind of how it rolls? Like, you know, you had um, Wilt Chamberlain and then Michael Jordan, and, you know, now it's Curry and the Dream Teams. I don't know. Brooklyn. I think Simone, Simone Biles is a, a magnitude of improvement beyond what's ever happened ever in the history of known sports in the modern era. What she has done to change gymnastics eclipses all of those great names that you just said, Stephen Curry, all of those people, because this person completely redefined the possibilities of the sport. She is so far and away above. I think that any Michael Jordan did that with basketball. Like with no one, the way he could travel through the air, I don't think anyone was doing that before he did. You're right. And I think Steph Curry brought the three pointer. Now, now I'm just talking out of my ass. I have no idea. But in my mind, like the three pointer was a prime thing. But nowadays it's everything. Like pretty much the game is shooting three pointers where before it used to be that miracle shot. Wouldn't it be interesting if they took away the three point line because they never had it for most of my growing up. There was no, it was always two wherever you were. It was two points, you know? Really? Yeah. There was no three point line prior to 1990 something. Hmm. <clears throat> I wonder what would happen. I wonder if that'd bring more finesse to the close to the net game. I predict here it is. 
it's Wednesday, which in our world is late Monday morning, really late Monday morning, Wednesday. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I predict that within the next five years, the three point line will get taken away from the NBA and we'll be back to just two points. All right. So God willing, our podcast is going to go until we're dead. So I'm going to make a note in five years to bring up uh, Mark. So let's you were take a wrong. look at the. <laughs> yeah. You owe me nothing because I didn't have the cognizance to bet. I owe you three pence. <laughs> three points. Three pence. Three pence. Had a pocket oh, full man. You know, Speaking of uh, Black Lives Matter and Juneteenth, and we haven't been at all, but we're about to. <laughs> I was, I've been listening to uh, American Notes by Charles Dickens. It's about his journey to the United States and traveling around and up into Canada a bit. He went to Niagara Falls. Anyway, he was horrified by what he witnessed with slavery in the United States. And, and throughout the book, he rails on it. But at the end... He is talking shit about how can the United States call itself a country for free and still have slavery. And then he he's making arguments about it. And I'm listening to the book being read. And one of the things he does, because he talks about public opinion is, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's all, Here's headlines from newspapers. And for five minutes, at least. There's headlines of atrocities to, you know, it's like reward, wanted, runaway slave, missing ear, lashes on back, you know, to in order to identify and for just on and on and on. And um, it was very powerful to listen to because at one point I'm like, holy shit, they just kept going and going. I think he made his point. <laughs> yeah. Too bad nobody listened for another 150 years. Yeah. Well. Well, wait, he was in the 1800s. It's 2021. <laughs> now, here's the sad thing. They're still right. Right. That's what I was just going to say. That's the sad thing is there's still people who aren't listening. <clears throat> they're still, God, bless somebody. There is so much history here, like just the system of incarceration, which was developed as a way to preserve slavery, because yeah. when you put people in jail, they're no longer subject to the protections from their the capitalizations on the on their labor. And so now you can pay them one cent an hour again. You don't and, even have to pay them. Yeah. And so it just became a new form of slavery. And so we, we just still have it to this day. Hasn't gone away. Yeah. You know, uh, you and I are sitting on our privilege and the level of suffering is just un, unfathomable for us. Like we could walk, you know, in lots of places in America and have the same experience that you were just talking about. Now I do <laughs> want to give a shout out to my friend toast who, um, you know, when I was had him guest him live with Greg, he's been a guest twice. Anyway, you know, he was saying there's an, he was 
saying there's an element of self-responsibility involved in everything. And he was talking about how he's been pulled over 50 times and never had an incident with police because every time he's pulled over, he just does what they say and doesn't create any chaos. And, and I'm not saying that to say all the people who are telling their stories are wrong. I am saying it to bring some balance to the narrative that there are times where people, well, again, and part of what you and I have spoke about is we are responsible for our reality. So, so, you know, Toast would say, yeah, so whatever you're experiencing, you, in essence, created. Not after well, there's agree. a really quick slippery slope to victim blame. Absolutely. Right. So, um, I, I think the laws of the universe are true in that regard, right? There is a way, right? But um, my, what I, in the, go ahead. In the book you're reading, Course in Miracles, one of the prime elements of it is forgiveness. And I think ultimately that's where humanity needs to arrive as more of a practice, as more of a daily breath. It's forgiveness. And um, for everyone, it's like, you know, me forgiving my dad for popping me in the face and, you know, and, um, and, and a general forgiveness because the militant stance is not a stance of peace. I understand it. And I'm, there could be reason for it right now. It could be part of the process of healing, but at some point, like there's no way peace in the middle East will happen if Palestine is unable to forgive Israel for the atrocities. Well, something just happened where you switched metaphors in the middle of what you were saying. We were talking about slavery and the oppression of right, BIPOC so, people and how forgiveness somehow relates to that. And right, I, the, I, idealistically, I understand what you're saying, but I think it's the height of arrogance and it is the worst possible thing you and I as white people could be talking about right now. The forgiveness of slavery by black people. It's just a terrible idea to even bring it up. It's not a terrible idea. It's a, it's a healing idea. It's <clears throat> as healing as the story I see where the woman's living next to the gentleman who killed her son. And it took a lot of time and effort and communication, et cetera. But ultimately it came to forgiveness and now they are partners in life. She's a mother to him. And that happens from forgiveness, that ability to live in life with the gentleman who murdered your son happens from forgiveness. And it's, it's, it's not an erasure. It's not a, um, victim thing, you know, like, well, I'm going to forgive him. And, well, you know, it's like a real heart healing action. Well, the person doing the forgiving does it as for themselves to release themselves from holding on to all of that. 
both are blessed both are blessed in that i just it's so problematic to bring it up in the in the context of 400 years of oppression i understand that i understand that but it's still a value to bring up but there's so many more important things to bring up than that besides (laughs) i don't know that i don't know that's like the um when I read uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu's book, he wrote with his daughter about forgiveness. And one of the things that he spoke of was how he and Nelson Mandela and uh, others involved with the leadership of South Africa after when Nelson Mandela became president was the importance of forgiveness. And part of what happened in the process is people telling their story just as recently the uh, two survivors from the Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre spoke to Congress, I think just a few months ago. And so story. Well, now you're talking about something that I can get behind, you know, which is a, a truths and rights commission. Right. And, but, and reparations, but that's the conversation that has to happen before we have any kind of conversations about forgiveness. So I think forgiveness is part of it. I don't think you can put forgiveness on the shelf and go, Oh, now it's time. Because if it stays in a place of r- reparations, that just goes on and on and on. Like yeah, it goes on for about 400 years is what it goes but on But that's for. what I mean. Like, there's no justification for time. Like, you're going you're gonna to base it strictly on time? Well, that's ridiculous because it's like the trial goes on. It just goes on. There is no end to that trial. Unless so wait, I'm going to here's here's my sort of alchemical drop of the the elixir. Of life. Oh, OK. okay. <laughs> it's not forgiveness. It's wholeness. And the path to wholeness means overcoming all of the illusions that people carry around why we're separate, which are the actual underpinnings of what allowed people to think that slavery was somehow okay because they didn't realize that they were perpetrating violence on themselves when they did it right Right. so it's not a forgiveness is an abstraction it's wholeness and the path to wholeness involves more than just a truth and rights commission and reparations you're right and forgiveness right there's no way we can have any of it without all of it Right. But it just seems like this, the level of this conversation where, where that's what we think is first is just, and I've said this three times already, so I'm just beating a, a dead horse. Well, that know, horse there are people that don't have this, the bandwidth, mental bandwidth, because they're so busy trying to survive because of what's happened to their family for generations that they can't even think about forgiving their, their black brother or their, their BIPOC sister because they don't have the mental bandwidth because of the level of suffering they're under. So forgiveness is a privileged concept. It's totally privileged. I don't, you don't think so. I think it's a, well, I know that you're that's, saying, that's why it's problematic no, for you to bring it up is because you don't it, No, No, If you're saying it's privileged because now a person's in a place of wholeness where they're able to forgive, like in what you just dropped earlier about wholeness, 
then I'd say, sure, I can accept that. But, <clears throat> and again, forgiveness isn't like when I hear the people talk, like this woman who became a mom to this gentleman and uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu and his daughter, they're not making light of what they experienced. It's for them to live a life of joy. Yeah, it's for you to be freed from the suffering of maintaining the, the relationship, the mental anguish, the suffering that goes with it. So the forgiveness right. part is for yourself. It's not for the other person. It's, um, like the people that I can think of that I respect who especially came to what I see as a holy state, you know, like Sojourner Truth and Malcolm X, they were in a state where they truly were one with everyone. It didn't matter who they were in the room with. They were in a room with brothers and sisters. And knowing what I know of their youth, that wasn't always the case. And I know more about Malcolm X than Sojourner Truth. Um, but I know for sure, like he transformed we we absolutely were the white devil until he went to the Middle East on the Mecca and experienced being in the presence with humanity and brotherhood and sisterhood and all were one. And then he came back to the United States and said, hey, that's what's real. And he was shot. <laughs> You know, like when Martin Luther King said, I think that's said, an oversimplification of it. Well, but I understand. It's not making light of what he experienced as a street hood and in prison and his transformation and what the, the, the transformative insights that he experienced with Islam, with, uh, I forget the gentleman's name who was the leader of Louis the, Farrakhan, the nation of Islam. Yeah, but it wasn't Louis Farrakhan. It was before him. During, no. Was it Louis Farrakhan? Yeah. So um, the other thing I'll say is I've noticed a propensity to speak from story instead Actually, of I experience. It was Elijah Muhammad. See, there you go. Thank you. I thought it was. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So I went and saw uh, Reverend Louis Farrakhan speak decades ago because I was curious. I had heard, you know, about who he was, but I thought, well, I should go check it out for myself. And what I witnessed was a man of peace. And I've heard from friends that behind closed doors, there's a different story. I don't know. That's a story. That's part of what I mean. Speaking from my experience, not from story, he's a man of peace. And I think we as human beings 
often act from story instead of personal experience. So like kids grow up in a racist family, they're acting from story as adults, not from experience. Well, no, they're acting from conditioning. Yeah, the that's whole story. designed to reinforce all of those behaviors. Well, I don't know if. So what you I think if uh, if I can take your argument for a second, you're equating the idea of what our story is with as a result of our conditioning. Right. It's a, it's an illusion. It's not the truth. It's something that is we're indoctrinated with. But and it can be here's another example that comes to mind. When I was 13, we were on this road trip and um, I met this neighbor to one of my cousins and she just went after me. And for the first time in my life, I was like making out with a girl and loving it, having a great time. But my cousin came to me and said, like, she's a fucking hoe, you know, like she's crazy, but all this stuff. And I believed that person. And the next day I just gave her the cold shoulder. And in hindsight, what I learned from that experience was that I am capable of acting from story instead of experience. I mistreated that person from a story I heard instead of acting from my experience with her. Yeah, I get it. We've come a long way in this conversation. We're, we're far afield. We've, We've managed to center our experience as white people as if it's somehow the profound thing in this conversation. And it's not. Well, again, it's just people talking. Like when we're at that point, when we're in a room with brothers and sisters, then like all the stuff can come out. There's an element of in that place, standing in the fire and <laughs> hearing someone's heat and someone's anger and just standing in it, being able to stand in it and understand why they're fucking mad and it's okay. And yeah, I get it. Be mad. And then like, wasn't it you who were telling me about the anger process where you like had pillows or something you were just beating the fuck out. Oh yeah. Me, we did, we did some, you know, anger expression as a way to try to do some trauma relief. Right. And that's been my experience with that process is when, and I did it with a group. And when we went through it, there was so much love in the room. There was a fucking lot of anger. Some shit got destroyed, but the aftermath was love. And that's, I, so I guess that's what I see with forgiveness. When I'm talking about forgiveness, I'm talking about we've gone through the fire, which has to be done. Yeah. One way to think about it is, is quote, processing the trauma. That sounds awfully white. <laughs> I can't help it. <laughs> processing the trauma. Right. And that's why it's such a, um, privileged idea because the generational trauma alone is impossible to process. Right. Right. But there's, as, as, so there's yeah. no way to expect the like sixth generation, eighth generation of BIPOC people 
whose ancestors and their ancestors and their ancestors and their ancestors were subjected to horrific and unspeakable treatments. Right. To speak of forgiveness in that context is like to speak of one drop of water in the presence of a volcano and lava. It's just so ephemeral. And the Course in Miracles and the point you're making about the healing of what we have to heal as beings together on the planet has to include the the process of becoming whole again. And I think like we were saying earlier, forgiveness, you know, reparations, speaking our truth, expressions, you know, but it's, I just keep coming back to one, you know, I've done a, a fair amount of work studying my own racism and my own white privilege. And even I'm really, really not up to this conversation. I don't, I don't have the skill yet or the, the capacity to really stay focused enough, the labor. So I can't imagine a BIPOC person trying to hang into this conversation and try to exp explain to us the fallacy of this expectation that's being created in the context of, well, we just, we can just process the forgiveness. Right. Uh, and like, there's this guy who was a Nazi in jail for 20 years. He's a white supremacist, you know, the tattoos, the SS, and he gets out and he decides that he's going to go in and change other white supremacist attitudes about racism. And he starts the work and it takes him another 20 years. And he's got like, he's actually got, I really, I should find out his name, honestly, because he's now, you know, teaching really hardcore white supremacists to not see it that way anymore. And I think that's the work. Yes, I agree. And there's a black gentleman who's a musician, same thing. And for him, it just came out of being a human being. And it just naturally sort of grew into him. Yeah. Um, and, and it's that kind of bravery. Like there's, I recognize huge bravery in these individuals um, like the woman who's now mom to this gentleman, it took huge amount of bravery to take those steps for, you know, let alone the first step, I'm sure the second, third, fifth, sixth were just as challenging, but I got to say, I'm excited about the thought of being in a room of brothers and sisters who trust me enough to let me have both barrels. And for me to trust them enough to stand in the fire and just stand there till it burns out. I'm fine. So you used that. a euphemism there called both barrels. Yeah. What you meant was emotionally. Well, no, that's what, yeah. I didn't mean actual shoot me. With yeah. Except barrels, that I won't be standing anymore, <laughs> but that's not what a brother or sister would do. Like I wouldn't shoot and kill a brother or sister and I won't be shot or killed by a brother or sister. There's places in the world where if you go into BIPOC spaces and start talking about forgiveness, you will get shot with both barrels. It's like, it's they're not it's it's I'm, not we're not there yet i'm gonna act like i am until i am okay i i, I support that like i get there's this piece where we have to foster the healing and every avenue towards that including like demonstrating the capacity of forgiveness i get it and wholeness and all these things and the, it, there's just so many other conversations before we get to forgiveness that have to happen right well, 
here's another piece. Like right now, you and I are debating in theory. Because there is, as far as I know, there's nothing between. I don't have anything that I feel like, well, Mark did me wrong. <laughs> you know, there's nothing real in my relationship with you yeah. that calls for forgiveness. So we're kind of in this academic debate to a degree. I would say it is an academic debate. This, If only we were academics. Well, we are. I think we're well read in this area. Yeah. Like here's another experience I had is when I um, first read Bell Hook and I was hearing about marginalization. And for me, it resonated because I was finally in a conversation that I resonated with. And it spoke to things I had been experiencing for two decades, two and a half decades I was like, wow, that's why I started going to women's studies regularly through my college. Because until that last year, <laughs> which is another story, I was involved in a conversation that fed me. Yeah. And those conversations have to be, have to continue if we're going to get any progress. And you and I, people who are, um, racialized as white have to be the ones having more and more of those conversations. It's a lot to ask of BIPOC people. It's, it's not very generous to ask, to expect them. I'm not to, asking. Anything. No, I know. I get that. I'm just stating it outright because I want that message to go out there. In case any BIPOCs are listening. <laughs> no, in case there's people who identify as white are listening. Fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering you know, when we get a, back to laughter. Woman, I figured it would never happen once we crossed the slavery Rubicon, but uh, no. that's it's, it's crack of jacks. You know, we will find a way to laugh about stupid shit like that. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Part right now where I'm at, which will probably increase the chances of us getting both barrels for reals, but who cares? You know, we'll be in good company. We've met <laughs> a couple of them tonight. <laughs> Uh, i was watching oh god clips and oh. um and there's that thing at the beginning where god first comes and he's all people are gonna think i'm nuts and god says you know copernicus aristotle uh, you'll be in good company <laughs> and i was thinking joan of arc soldier of truth you know yeah right yeah yeah that's awesome yeah yeah, for those who are too young to know, there was this incredibly great movie called Oh God, really? which starred uh, a couple of white guys. Yeah. It was funny. It was brilliant. It is still brilliant, man. Yeah, George Burns and uh, John Denver, which John Denver in his only leading acting role, as far as I know. And he was so perfect for that. It was so perfectly cast. Yeah. Yeah, it sure is white though. That's for real. It's a oh, very man. white movie. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I think we're over an hour. We are, and uh, it's only downhill from here until next week. Recording stopped. <laughs>